Hello, Internet friend. I'm David Ravel, and this is ValueSide. Today, Davos and the West Virginia model. Well, last week, the World Economic Forum held its 2024 annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. It's the top, the very pinnacle, of worldwide leaders in politics and economics what the WEF likes to refer to as the global stakeholders. Stakeholders is a relatively obscure term that Klaus Schwab rescued from the dustbin of investment language to describe those who are invested in and manage their countries. This year, 2,700 leaders from 130 countries, including 52 heads of state, were present. Among the dignitaries were former Chicago lawyer, now head of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, as well as Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesi, Director of the World Health Organization. As you can tell, it was an opportunity for these leaders of international non-government organizations to rub elbows. Now, one of the biggest surprises of the conference was China's attendance. For those who did not book the hotel reservations, there was a doubt whether China would attend at all. But they did, and what's more, they had the largest delegation of any of the 130 countries. Scuttlebutt has it that the Americans did not react well to this diplomatic tour de force. John Kerry, the former environmental czar and now full-time campaigner for President Biden, was reportedly particularly annoyed. Ah, so presiding over the event, as he has for every year since its founding, was the bald pate and lugubrious voice of Klaus Schwab. Schwab has gained an international stature that is second to none, extolled by some as a visionary who will guide us into a new economic era. Others condemn him as the leader of a global plot to take over the world. While there may be more people who see Schwab in a negative light, there can be little doubt that the powers and money of this world follow his every word. Now, as we've come to expect from these international business and political leaders, everyone stayed on script. Ever the stockbroker, David Solomon, chairman of the CEO of Goldman Sachs, warned that the market may be, quote, getting ahead of itself. Now, International Energy Agency head Fatih Birol told us that clean energy will see unstoppable growth. What did you expect him to say? And then Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, repeated Lindsey Graham's line that fighting in Ukraine was good for America, protecting democracy. And besides, it's only the Ukrainian boys who are dying. But behind the smiling faces was an unease that can be seen in some of the outlier speeches and certainly in this year's theme. It's the sense that the natives are getting restless, Many of the tried-and-true themes that the WAF has used in the past no longer resonate with the average citizen. This year's Davos Conference theme reflects, quote, cooperation in a fragmented world. Now, fragmented is code that many now reject Schwab and the WAF's vision for the future. Two blockbuster speeches reflected this dissent. Both warned that while the WAF may be leading... There's no one following. The parade that Schwab began 53 years ago is likely to lose its cachet. If not careful, the WEF may decline to irrelevance. 
Now, the first to speak was the new president of Argentina, Javier Meili. For 20 years, Meili was a professor of economics at several Argentine universities and most recently has proven to have an across-the-board appeal with the Argentine people. He's a populist economist. That's something I didn't think even existed. Now, Meili comes from one of the most troubled economies in the world. Along with Turkey, Argentina consistently has one of the worst inflation records on the planet. So he thoroughly understands the problems created by a centrally planned economy. And that's his criticism of the World Economic Forum. From my perspective, he used a poor choice of words when he decided to address the WEF as drifting too close to, quote, socialism. While socialism may have a particular meeting in Argentina, it's likely that it has a much more benign meeting in this worldwide audience that he intended. Put bluntly, Mealy is saying that the idea of an elite gathering of decision makers who will decide the future course of humanity is the essence of the problem. From Mealy's perspective, central planning does not work economically, no matter how attractively it's wrapped. Now, the second speaker to sound a note of reform was Kevin D. Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. Universally acclaimed as the, quote, conservative think tank, Heritage is one of the few Washington-based research organizations to feature the economic ramifications of their work. A Ph.D. in history, Roberts sees the sweep of this age moving against the WEF. He projects a complete replacement of the current power elites, especially in the United States. He's a robust Donald Trump supporter, and Roberts believes he will win the next election. And with that, create a new administration. I will be candid, Roberts began. The agenda that every single person, every member of the future Republican administration needs to have is a complete list of everything that's ever been proposed at the World Economic Forum and object to them wholesale. He further urges that anyone not prepared to do that and take away this power of the unelected bureaucrats and give it back to the American people is unprepared to be part of the next conservative administration, unquote. <laughs> it remains to be seen if Mr. Roberts will be invited back for the 2025 confab. But no matter what you think of the politics of either of these two gentlemen, the fact remains that their critique of the WEF is very close to the mark. It all comes from a single meme, it's a phrase that cuts the World Economic Forum a little deeper each time it's repeated. Just what's the mantra? Why, it's, you will own nothing and be happy. In page two, we'll explore just where that came from. Page two, you'll own nothing and be happy. Now, on November 11th, 2016, a progressive politician named Ida Aiken wrote an article entitled, quote, Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better, unquote. It may sound like a critique of modern culture, but Miss Aiken meant to awaken the world to a bright new future. In Miss Aiken's world, this is life as it should be. She opens her article with this paragraph, quote, Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. 
Now that might seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense to us in this city. Unquote. In Miss Aachen's vision, private property is eliminated and all the necessities of life are free. In her words, everything we think of as property is now a service. Transportation, accommodation, food, everything is now a free service. It's an all-new way to organize society. And what's more, this new kind of world has the additional benefits of reducing lifestyle disease, climate change, the refugee crisis, environmental degradation, complete congested cities, water pollution, air pollution, social unrest, and unemployment, she says. It's a utopian vision of the first order. And in fairness to Miss Aiken, it is not meant as a thorough representation of how such a society might operate. It was told to get people thinking. And on that score, it was incredibly successful. Critics quickly jumped on her premise as a world where, quote, we will own nothing and be happy. And that's where the phrase came from. In a typical organization, this is the type of off-the-cuff screed that people would run away from. The institutions that I'm familiar with would quickly disavow any random fancies as mere water cooler musing, something not to be taken seriously, but not the World Economic Forum. For Klaus Schwab and the rest, Alken had struck a note. Hers is the same vision as they share. Within three years, Klaus Schwab would write his vision for the future in a book titled COVID-19, The Great Reset and he outlines the ways and means to achieve a society that resembles Miss Alkin's vision. And so the meme stuck. You will own nothing and be happy has become the sin qua non of the World Economic Forum. Page 3. Stakeholder Capitalism, the American Experience. Now one's view of utopia depends on which side of the table you sit on. Ida Aachen paints a picture of harmonious existence in which your every need and desire is met. And what could be better than having free food, free medicine, living quarters, and transportation all free? Indeed, from the perspective of those gathered at Davos, Switzerland, last week, that is the world they are building for humanity. It's an idyllic 15-minute city where everyone is truly happy and content. And what's more, a 15-minute city that meets all the sustainable goals, it's productive and pollution-free. Now, the worldview of today's World Economic Forum is perfectly in sync with those of the coal miner owners of a century ago in West Virginia. From their perspective, from their cloistered halls in New York, Boston, and Baltimore, they had created the perfect environment for their workers. You see, the rich coal veins that run through this part of the Appalachian Mountains were highly remote. No one had ever tamed the region. There were no towns, no cities, no roads existed. There was no way for people to get from place to place, much less live there. And the stakeholders solved all that. They built the railroads that would eventually take the coal to the East Coast markets. They eventually created the houses and towns where the miners would live, the town hall, the local church, and the company store. They constructed everything. They even hired the sheriff, the mayor, and the pastor of the church. Everything that the stakeholders could think of, they provided for their miners. Even then, they even supplied the money for their workers, 
It was called script, the same script that they paid the miners and that could only be sent at the company store. It was, in short, a complete economic system where everything was provided for the company's workers, at least everything that the stakeholders believed they needed. It was the realization of the vision of the World Economic Forum, a century before Klaus Schwab. Now, from the mine's discovery until 1920, everything functioned as it should for three extraordinary decades. That is, at least from the stakeholders' perspective. Cigars and brandy for everyone. Profits were up. Coal production was more than expected. And this venture into stakeholder capitalism exceeded everyone's expectations. But then, in 1920, a troublemaker came on the scene. His name was John Lewis, and he was a hero to the miners of West Virginia. He was the first national figure to recognize that far from living in a stakeholder utopia, the miners were suffering. Many homes were substandard. The families froze in the wintertime and sweltered in the summer. The company's store often charged exorbitant prices, as it was the only place the miners could spend their paychecks, in company script. From the miners' perspective, the game was rigged, the deck was stacked, and before John Lewis, no one had noticed. For 30 years, the United Mine Workers Union tried to organize the West Virginia miners, but to no effect. The mine owners, those stakeholders, effectively blocked the union and would fire any worker who joined. But suddenly, there came a bushy-head Welshman, John Lewis. He grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, just up the river from West Virginia. And although Cleveland began as a company town, it had grown beyond its earliest beginnings by now. So Lewis was very familiar with the oppression that can come from a one-owner, monopolistic company town. Word that Lewis wanted to organize the West Virginia mines electrified the miners. One by one, they began to join Lewis's United Mine Workers. The UMW was a genuine threat to the stakeholders' corporate system, so they acted predictably. They brought in a group of union-busting thugs. The mine owners hired the Felt Brothers, owners of the Baldwin Felt Detective Agency, to take care of matters. The Felts began their reign of terror down at the Stone Mountain Coal Company. The company had just fired a worker with the audacity to join the UMW. Remember, when you worked for Stone Mountain or any of the coal companies, your house was part of your employment package. Get fired and you lose your house. So in the middle of the day, when they knew the husband would be at work in the mine, Albert and Lee Feltz, along with 11 other thugs, proceeded to throw a woman and her children out of their home. All of their belongings, along with the kids, hit the street. And what made their plight worse was a cold, light rain that was falling. Can you imagine? This infuriated the miners. A group of outside vigilantes had come into their town to create havoc. This barbarism became the cause belli that would ignite a war between the mine owners and the miners, and the most significant battles in the country since the Civil War would ensue. Stakeholder utopia had clearly gone wrong. Now, the history of the mine workers' struggle in West Virginia is fascinating. 
ultimately aligned, World War I Army veterans stood on both sides of the line. And in one of the most telling chapters of this entire story, the everyday American citizens, the miners, stood down, unwilling to confront their former comrades from the Great War. Now for the everyday mine worker in West Virginia, the company town and all it entailed is a story of oppression and degradation, tragically ending in broken lives and spilled blood. Any careful analysis of the events of a hundred years ago realizes that the plan of the company town was flawed from the very beginning. The way to prosperity and harmony is more readily achieved through economic and political freedom. Take away all of that and you condemn a people to a future of poverty and want. Today, a century after the stakeholders discovered some of the most productive coal veins in the world, that wealth has yet to filter down to the West Virginia miners. Today, the Mountain State remains one of the poorest sections of this country. The more you know about the West Virginia Company town, the less you'll think about the 15-minute city and the World Economic Forum's vision for the future. And that's ValueSide. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit ValueSide.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own.